And if you will, keep your place in John chapter 5. The title of the message today is, When You Are So Right, You Are Wrong. I'm sure the men in the room will echo and amen what I'm about to say, but there are many days in my life that I am so sure of myself, so sure of my position and what I have witnessed that I become impatient or arrogant with my wife, particularly in the area of the refrigerator. I will open the refrigerator, for example, and I will say, there is no milk anywhere in this refrigerator. Now, my wife buys almond milk. I, I don't even know why anybody would drink that or how that works because almonds do not get milked, but she buys almond milk. And there's 90 cases of almond milk at any given time in our refrigerator. And when I open the door, it appears there is no cow milk. And so I'll go back in a frustration, I've done this before, and I'll get, in a sense, angry and say, wife, why when you went to the store did you not buy any cow milk? Why did you buy three more boxes of almond milk to which she will take me to the refrigerator and say, I did. No, you didn't. I searched the refrigerator. I touched everything in the refrigerator. I put my hand on every item that was there. I even cataloged it. And then she'll open that refrigerator and somehow... Somehow that refrigerator has a cloaking device. And when we open that refrigerator, there appears the milk staring me frontal right there in the face. Have you ever had that happen, men? Can I get an amen from all the men who say, I promise you, I promise you, that was not there before. So in those moments, I'm so sure of myself and so sure of my position, I want to righteously go and say, wife, why? And she corrects me and says, honey, you're, you're so right, essentially, that you're wrong. You have no idea what you're talking about. Now, on trivial matters like milk, that's not a big deal. But what if it was bigger? What if it was greater? What if it was more important than what's in your refrigerator? What if you're so right, you're wrong on matters of God. Can I give you a little tidbit here that is absolutely true? There is no cultist, there is no heretic, there is no World Trade Center bomber who believed that what they were doing was evil. Every cult Every so-called Messiah, every bomber who puts themselves on an airplane and slams into World Trade Centers does so because in their heart of hearts, they believe they are right. They don't believe they're wrong. They believe they are right. And they are so right, they're wrong. Now, what about us? We may not say we're cult, or we're, we're bombers, or we're aberrant world religions, but what about us? Would we say maybe some of our theology, we're so confident in it, we're so right about it, but are we wrong? When you come to John chapter 5, Jesus has just 
healed a man who was lame at the five colonnades at the uh, pool there uh, in John chapter 5. And after Jesus heals this man, the Jews come to investigate. And the one thing that they are against is not Jesus, but his interpretation of the Scripture. Now, if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that, all you have to do is you just look at chapter 5, verse 38. You look at chapter 5, verse 39. And you look at chapter 5, verse 48. And in those three verses, Jesus equates what is happening between he and these Jewish leaders with the Word of God. Some of you may look at the title today, and you may even look at the subtitle, How to Search the Scriptures, and you, you just noticed what we read in the Bible, and you may say, what does this have to do with Scripture? Pastor, this is Jesus healing a man, and this is Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders of his day. Well, can I tell you that when they confronted Jesus, they confronted the Word of God? Jesus is the Word of God. And if you get the Word of God wrong, it's not that your doctrine is wrong. It's that your understanding of Jesus the Messiah is wrong. And that is extremely serious. That is extremely heavy. Jesus said here to these people, you do not have His Word abiding in you. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they bear witness to me. He says in verse 49, if you did not believe the testimony, the writing, the Scripture of Moses, then how will you believe? All of this that is happening is an attack upon Holy Scripture. So today what we want to do is we want to get our Scripture right because we want to get Jesus right, and we want to make certain that we're not so right, we're wrong, all right? So we're going to talk about how to search the Scriptures today. Two things we're going to look at. Number one on the outline the first way of how to search the Scriptures always begins with what we call interpretation. Interpretation, that is making it come out in context, making it come alive. So here's what you do. How do you, how do you search the Scriptures? Well, number one, ask, what is Scripture saying? What is Scripture saying? In other words, am I interpreting the Scripture correctly? Now, I want to tell you that as we look into this text, the Jewish leaders were not interpreting the Scripture correctly. In fact, that was their entire problem. They're coming against Jesus for two reasons. But the first reason is Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Now, go back to verse 9 and 10, and you notice in verse 10 particularly, after Jesus heals, it says, "...it is the Sabbath." It was the Sabbath, verse 9. Now, that day was the Sabbath. That frames the entire healing that Jesus just did. This is very important. Now, what does the Sabbath have to do with healing? Well, the Sabbath was on Saturday. And as you know, probably from your study of Scripture, that God had instituted the Sabbath uh, early on in Israel's history. It started in creation. God rested on the seventh day. Now, God did not rest like you and I rest. That would be impossible. God is always working. 
But what we learn in the book of Genesis is the word rest is Shabbat, which means to cease. So it's not necessarily to sleep. It's not necessarily to, um, to quit laboring. It just means you cease whatever you were doing. And so God ceased his work of creation. God never sleeps. God never stops. If he did, the universe would fall apart. But what God did in Genesis is he ceased creating. Now, based off that, he told the children of Israel, when he rescued them out of the promised land, that they were to give a day of ceasing. Now, they were to cease specifically from their common labor. Whatever they did, six days a week. They were to work, they were to work hard, they were to make a living, they were to collect food, but after six days, they were to Shabbat. They were to cease for one day. It's interesting as well because in the Jewish days of the week, they do not name their days, typically. They have the first day of the week, they have the second day of the week. The only day they name is Shabbat, which is the Sabbath, which is the last day of the week, Saturday. Now, that's not the way we are in English. We name our days. I don't know what every day is named after, but I know Thursday is named after the German god Thor, Thor's day. And so English people name their days after something. But Jewish people numbered their days, and the only day they would name was Shabbat, which was the day of ceasing from common labor. God gave this to his Jewish people, and he gave it for, for three just basic, easy reasons. Number one, he wanted to refresh them. There's nothing wrong with work, but he wanted to refresh them. And then, not only did he want to refresh them, but he wanted them to take one day out of their schedule and rest from common labor, and labor in those things which are spiritual. Today, we have this idea that we are supposed to hold the Sabbath, and that Sunday is a day of rest, and that is not biblically accurate. Sunday is a day to come together, the first day of the week, but Sunday is not typically a day of rest just like the Sabbath was not rest per se, the Sabbath was a time where they came together as a family, where they read the scriptures together, where they would go to the synagogue. After the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the synagogue took center place in the life of Jewish society. So they would go and they would have their Shabbat and they would focus that day on God. Their work was work in God. Their day was the market day, as the Puritans would say, of the soul. And they ministered to themselves. Now today, Christians do not celebrate the Sabbath. If we did, then a lot of things would be different. You couldn't go out to eat after church today. You uh, would have to start at sundown. And a lot of the rules and regulations that applied to Israel would not work for us. Christians have never celebrated the Sabbath. 
We celebrate on the first day of the week. Why? Because the Scripture says Jesus rose on the first day of the week. The Scripture says in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost happened on the first day of the week. So historically, the, the new believers in Israel, in Jerusalem, who were coming out of Judaism, wanted to distinguish between Shabbat and the first day of the week when we gather together to worship our resurrected Savior. The law of God was in place until Jesus died. Jesus observed the Sabbath, but he also said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And everything about the Sabbath was a picture that pointed to the rest that would come in Christ Jesus. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told in that beautiful book that's all about the Messiah, that today we can enter into his rest. What is his rest? Salvation. And so we don't celebrate the Sabbath any longer. Now the principle is good. Rest is a good principle. And people like Truett Cathy knew that. They, they said, look, I can work six days a week making chicken, but it's good for my people and it's good for my business if I take a day off. I love to read business people's books. And I, I read a book by Truett Cathy years ago called, How'd You Do It, Truett? And in that book, he talks specifically in a chapter about Sunday. And he says, you know, I made the choice that we were going to take that day off to rest. Not necessarily because I felt it was a command, but I felt it was good. And some of the logic he employs is he says, our employees are better after getting to spend a day with their family. And you know what? The customers seem to be happier on Monday when they come to eat our chicken because they didn't have it on Sunday. And so it creates more of a loyal following and even more of a desire for people to eat my chicken. Isn't that brilliant? He knew the principle of Shabbat can be applied to so many areas of life. And I would encourage you, you don't have to work six, seven days a week, seven days a week. You don't have to play sports seven days a week. Sometimes taking Shabbat so that you can rest as principle, not as command, but as principle, is a good thing for your body. It's a good thing for you. It's a good thing for your family. It's a good thing for your church. Now let's get back to the text. Here they had this Sabbath. And for them, the Sabbath was a legal command. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Jesus did not break any of the rules of the Old Testament. The only real rule in the Old Testament was that they were to cease from their everyday labor. They were not to cease from spiritual things. They were not to cease from doing good in the community. They were not to cease from helping other people. What had happened though, like so many things, the scribes and the Pharisees over time had added regulations to Shabbat. God had made the rule very, very simple, and they had added. And what they did is they went to the Old Testament where it talked about the tabernacle. Now, they did some finagling with Scripture. And this is what I want you to see about interpretation. And this is how I want to bring all of this together. I know it's a lot of information, but you've got to understand it if you're going to understand why they're so angry at him and why it's an issue of Scripture. So, 
they took all these scriptures in Ezekiel about the tabernacle and they juxtaposed it with the commands in Moses about the Sabbath and the religious leaders of that day came up with 1,500 different rules based on 39 areas of the tabernacle and they created all these crazy ideas and theology around Shabbat. And so they had all these rules. One of the rules is you can't carry your mat on Shabbat. And so what were these leaders doing? They were creating legalism. Now that's letter A. What does the Scripture say? If we will pursue what the Scripture says, then it will avoid legalism. Now what is legalism? Legalism is adding anything to Scripture and demanding that everybody else does the same. So, I mean, for example, and I'm not trying to, uh, you know, get under your goat here, but dancing used to be a big deal among Baptists. I had an old lady at my last church, she, she would tell me every time I would say this, well, you know, Pastor so-and-so used to say that a, a dancing knee and a praying knee don't have nothing in common. I don't know what that meant, but she would always say that to me at the back of the door. A dancing knee and a praying knee don't have nothing in common. Now, where we got this idea that dancing was evil is John R. Rice, who used to be an evangelist, wrote a book on the dance. And he based his whole theology of evangelical, conservative fundamentalists not dancing on this idea that when Moses came down from the mountain and the children of Israel had made the golden calf, they were dancing. They were dancing. And so dancing is evil, right? And so that was what the whole theology was built on. And people began to run with that in the 40s and in the 50s. And Baptists became known as people who didn't dance. And yet David danced before the Lord when he brought the uh, Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. I don't know what we did with that verse. I guess we threw it out. And all the Psalms that say make a joyful noise and sing and, and dance before the Lord with thanksgiving. I don't know what we did with those verses. I guess we chopped them out of our Bible. Now, no doubt today dancing has become even looter, right? And there's all kinds of things we want to avoid. But if we legalistically say you can't ever dance because God doesn't like to boogie, something's wrong with that. That's legalism. That's legalism. Because the Bible doesn't say that. It's the same thing with long hair. In the 60s, I mean, I don't like long hair on men and, and vice versa, you know, uh, the opposite of women, but that's my preference. But in the 60s, we said, if you have long hair, you're nothing like Jesus who had long hair. We said, if you have a beard, you're nothing like Jesus who had a beard. And so the very Jesus that we were worshiping was the condemnation we were putting out to people that were coming into our churches. That's legalism. What we've done is we've taken what the Bible says, and it may say a lot of good, general, beautiful things, but we twist it. We twist it. And that's what they were doing right here with the Sabbath. They had taken that Sabbath, that day of rest, Rest from your common labor, and they were twisting it. You say, well, pastor, how do we know they were twisting it? Look at verse 10. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. You see, that's one of the 1,500 commandments that the Mishnah has added to the Scripture, and you've violated our law, and you, sir, are in trouble. 
Now, no one was excited that he had been healed. No one was excited that some great work had been done. They were only concerned that the law had been violated. That's all they cared about. And why did they care about that? Because they were not asking, what is the Scripture truly saying? They were not seeking to go back to the Scripture and interpret Scripture and life from what the Bible says. Now notice letter B on the outline. We ask what is Scripture saying. This avoids legalism, but it also avoids a lack of love. A lack of love. Now, they're not interested in hearing this man. Notice verse 11. He answered them, The man who healed me said to me, Take up your mat and walk. Notice what he says. The man who healed me. Notice what they say back in return in verse 12. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your mat and walk? Do you see that? They're not listening to him. They don't love him. They don't care that this man has been laying here all these years. They are suspicious. They're thinking you did not really get healed. We don't believe that. And this man, whoever he was who healed you, and they don't know yet who it was, whoever he was that healed you, we're not interested in that. We're interested in the fact that you broke the law, period. He says, well, the man who healed me. And they say, yeah, the man who told you to take your mat and get up and walk. Let's talk about that. You see, they don't love him. They don't care. They're legalistic. Notice thirdly, doing this, when we ask, okay, what is the Scripture truly saying? Doing this avoids wrong living. These Jewish leaders could care less that this man has maybe been healed, maybe not. All they care about is the legal law. But notice afterward, verse 14. Jesus found the man in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This speaks to healing. We can pray for healing all day long. And God may heal us. But you know what? We're still going to die. Everyone that was healed in the New Testament by Jesus still died. The people that came out of the grave like Lazarus, in the New Testament, and those who came out of the tomb when Christ was resurrected, they still died again. Have you ever thought about that? Everyone is going to die. That's not trying to be morbid. The point is, while we may pray for time and we may pray for God to be patient, the the truth is we're all going to face eternity. And in what Jesus says in verse 14 to this man emphasizes eternity. He found him and he said, see, you're well, that's good. You've been healed today, but you better get your life right because something worse is coming if you're not ready for it, and it's called eternity. And if you're not ready for eternity, then you will ultimately not be healed. You'll be in condemnation, you'll be in wrath, you'll be in judgment. Jesus' words that nothing worse may happen to you. What is the worse? Hell. Eternity. Without God. And so what Christ does is not only heals this man physically, but seeks to heal him spiritually. Christ loves him. 
Christ wants his life to be on the right track. Letter C, doing this, searching the Scripture, means we're searching Jesus, means we're asking what the Bible says. It means that we're getting to know Christ in the right and true way. And when we do this, it avoids wrong living. Wrong living. When we go to the Bible and we say, I want to rightly interpret this Scripture because I want to know the Jesus of Scripture, it avoids legalism, it avoids a lack of love within the body of Christ and to people outside, and it gives us right living. Right living. There are churches and there are pastors that are wrongly interpreting Scripture and people are living their lives based on what is being said. And some of them could be living a lie. It's not true. They're living in sin. They've never confessed Christ as Lord. They've been told all they need to do is just have faith. Think positively. God loves everybody. Well, he does love everybody, but he has a condition on salvation, and that is through his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, how we read the Scripture and interpret the Scripture matters, and we better be careful that we're not so right, we're wrong. And so it's always important that we take our golden calves, our traditions, the things that we've held on to, and say, but what does the Bible say? doesn't matter what our grandparents believed. God bless them. doesn't matter what we did 50 years ago. I mean, maybe that's precedent, and it has a role to teach us. But unless 50 years ago, and unless our grandparents were reading the Scripture properly, tradition doesn't matter. Now, if they were reading the Scripture properly and they were following the Word of God, listen, evaluate it, take it, and be blessed. But always view what the Scripture is saying. All right, number two. Number two. The second thing, how do we search the Scriptures? Well, the first thing, Jesus confronts these legalistic Jews who have misinterpreted the Sabbath. They have added all these truths to it, and it is an issue of interpretation. And so they are mad at Jesus because He's broken their interpretation of the Sabbath. But notice, they go to Him. And so we read in verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. That's reason number one they were persecuting him. He was not in line with their theology. And every good Pharisee believed that the concept of the Messiah would be that the Messiah would be a Pharisee. He would be in submission to the laws of the Mishnah, and he would join them in the work of making new laws to plug up the holes that are there in the Bible. There's too much freedom And they wanted those holes plugged. And so because Jesus did not fit this, fit their interpretation, he could not have been the Messiah. But secondly, we have to ask, what is the Scripture asking? What is the Scripture asking? So what is it saying and what is it asking? Now notice when Jesus begins to speak in verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. 
This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So now this is another reason they're against him. Reason number one, he doesn't fit their interpretation of the Bible. And so they're not looking at what the Bible is saying But now he speaks, and there is more that is added to their hatred of him. He now is confronting them. And what he is asking is not what they believe the Bible is asking. He equates himself with God the Father. He says, I and the Father are working. We are fellowshipping together. We are one. We are God. And so because of this, they want to persecute him all the more. He makes himself equal with God. This is an incredible claim. Now, what we need to do when we come to the Scripture is exactly the opposite of what these Pharisees were doing. We need to say, okay, when I'm confronted with the Word of God, what is it asking me to do? And you're here today, and you're listening to a sermon And the point of you being here today is not to listen to a speech. It is not to hear a speaker. It is not to go, okay, I learned something new today. No, the point of us being here is to be confronted because the Scripture is always asking something of you. It is always coming at you and challenging you to make you into the image of Jesus Christ if He is truly the Lord of your life. And when these Jewish leaders came up against Jesus, that is exactly what he was doing. His statement says, I am God, I am equal, I am working, now what will you do with that? What would they do with that? What was Jesus asking of them? He was asking them, am I Lord? That's letter A. When we do what the Scripture is asking, we focus on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, what we learn in Scripture is that all Scripture is ultimately about Jesus. You don't believe that. Christ says over and over again, it all points to me. It all points to me. Do you remember in Luke 24 when Christ was on the road to Emmaus and he he had just resurrected from the grave, but People weren't aware of this everywhere. And he meets two disciples on that road. And the disciples are are walking, and Christ comes upon them some way, somehow. We're really not told details. There's all kinds of theories. Did he appear? Did he walk over to them? But he, he begins walking with these disciples. And as he's walking with these disciples, he begins to explain how Moses... And the writings of the Old Testament were all about the Messiah, Jesus. And then he disappears. And they say when he's gone, that must have been Christ. They didn't recognize him in his resurrected body. They did not recognize him. But they they said when he was gone, that must have been Christ. Didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke the Scripture? What he spoke, somehow, some way, he began with Moses and went all the way through the prophets on that road and showed them how the Old Testament pointed to him. 
I did my doctoral dissertation on that passage of Scripture many years ago. And I'm telling you, I wish the Bible would have recorded that conversation. Because everyone would like to know, how did Jesus make the entire Old Testament point to Him? But He did. And if He did, then it is possible for us to do the same. So whenever you come in front of the Word, whatever you're coming to, Old or New Testament, it's all about Jesus. And Christ comes to you in the eternal Logos, the Word. That's what John 1 tells us. He is the Word. And when He comes to you, the Word is asking something of you. It's confronting you. And it's saying you must grow if you are a child of God. You must be sanctified. And the reason of that is because every believer, everyone born again, Jesus is not just a teacher. He is just not a a rabbi. He's not a good guy. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is our Lord and our Savior. And so we want to come to our Lord and our Master and say, What do you want of me? What do you expect of me? You are God, and I am your child, which leads us to letter B. When we ask what the Scripture is asking, and that's application, when we do this, it focuses on sonship, on lordship and on sonship. What is sonship? Lordship is Christ is my Lord. Sonship is I'm a child of God. And the fact that I'm a child of God God has promised to create in me a new heart, and that is a process. So I am being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ daily. It is what we call in theology sanctification. God is sanctifying us into the image of Christ Jesus. So everything that happens to me, whether I get cancer whether I have children, whether I get diabetes, whether I lose somebody that I love, whether I live a long time and I wonder, why am I still here? Everything in your life, if you are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, is meant to refine you and to make you more into the image of Jesus Christ. This life for the believer is nothing more than practice. You're lifting weights. You're practicing. The game is eternity. And God is getting you ready right now for the big game. This is not the game. This is the weight room. This is not the game. This is practice where you go over the plays. This is not it. But this is where He refines you and works off all the sin that has entangled you. We have habits and patterns that are in our life that need to be broken. And the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the Son of God works to break those habits and patterns and to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ because we are His sons and His daughters. You see, that's what happens when we come to the Bible and we say, okay, I want to know what this means and I want to know what it's asking because it's all about Jesus and I belong to Jesus and I am His. And so I'm here and I'm listening and I'm receiving. Is that what these Pharisees did? 
when they were confronted with the living Word of God? No. No, not at all. Not at all. They had their own interpretation, and they had their own application, and they were so right in their own eyes, they couldn't see what was right in front of them, which was the Messiah the Scriptures pointed to. How about you? Are you so right in your theology and your history and your living that you're wrong? That you're wrong? What about, what about us? Everything we do must come under this lens of Scripture. And we must say, what is it saying and what is it asking? Let's pray that we can do that. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? And would you help me as we pray together to just focus where you are? And our musicians are going to come and they're going to begin playing. And I just want to ask you, you've been confronted this morning with God's Word. And it's not just a speech, and it's not just a sermon, and it's not just a pep talk to get you through the week. The Lord wants to use this to sanctify you in some glorious and beautiful way. So how is He using the Word of God to sanctify you? Ask that question. Ask that question. Say, Lord, would you do this work in my heart and in my life today? Would you grow me spiritually? I don't want to stay where I'm at because I'm yours. I belong to you, and you are Lord of my life. Let's stand together and sing Jesus, only Jesus. If you need to come, we're here, we're available to share the gospel in any way we can with you.